Hey, this is Karen, Coach's Corner Chats, and on the podcast, I have Don Williams. Don, where are you at, and what are you up to? Hey, Karen, man, thanks for having me on, man. I'm a big fan. I've been following you and listening to your podcast, so I'm, I, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. It's great. Um, yeah, so I'm in California. I'm in Northern California. I moved up to the mountains of Northern California. I guess we're going on 12 years now. Uh, born and raised San Francisco Bay Area, and that's where my coaching career and journey and playing days and all of that happened was in was in Northern California, San Francisco East Bay Area. And what is it that you're up to now? You've talked about coaching and playing. What is your kind of primary role right now? Ah, so I'm head of operations for the Americas. So my territory is everything from Argentina to Canada for Sports Recruiting USA. A company that I connected with back when I was coaching. Uh, they started in 2010 out of England. And a little bitty school that I moved up to and started coaching, I realized I was never going to win with local kids. Uh, and I had to expand my base of kids that I brought in. And I connected with Chris Cousins in 2011, probably, uh, the year after I started. And I started recruiting his players. So when I retired, this is the role that I stepped into was building what the company does, except doing it in the Americas. And what what kind of things does your company cover? It, it, we hear recruiting, but what what exactly are some of the things on that checklist that you provide? Really, we're more of an agency than than anything else. Uh, think about, you know, if you went to a, if you were a pro player and you went to a pro agent, you would want them to be reaching out to clubs for you and promoting you and building your profile for you and trying to find the right place, the right club to play at, the right uh, finances for you, all of that. We do that in the world of college recruiting for our kids. So our staff now, I don't know, I tried to estimate the other day, Kieran, we probably have about 300 years worth of college coaching. And we've got guys that have coached at Dartmouth. We've got guys that have won national titles at Indiana. We've got guys that uh, uh, have coached on the women's side, West Coast Division One for long periods. I was lucky. I coached NAIA, D2, D3, all at the same school. Very lucky. And then coached junior college at three different schools, short stint coaching pro. So between all of us as a group, we feel like we are very, very connected. We've got girls at Florida State. I guess that's about as high as you can get on the girls' side. We've got guys at Indiana and then everything in between. We have JC kids and NAIA kids and D3 kids and D2 kids because for us, it's not really about the label. It's about finding the right fit for that kid. So that's what we do is we do a deep dive analysis, getting to know kids and their families and figuring out what they don't know what the right fit is for them. Most families don't, most kids don't. They only know the names of the labels that they see uh, in the news or on Twitter or on whatever, on TV. But they really don't know what all goes into finding the right fit for them. So that's what we do is we are very boutique. We don't take in a lot of clients every year. We take in a, a few hundred boys and girls, that's it. And then we guide them and connect them with coaches that are I was just texting coaches and emailing and calling coaches today. That's what we do every day. And do you find that that's kind of a hard sell when 
the players only hear about those top level programs or think D1 is, does it take some time for you to build into their brains that, Hey, there are other options. There's D2 and JUCO and NAI and, and all those types of things. What do those conversations look like? They can range from virtually impossible to pretty easy. It depends who the kid and the family is and the level we find and arguably so, you know, the family that's dropping 10 to $20,000 a year, traveling their kid around the country, hoping that their kid plays at Notre Dame someday, they've got a lot of time, money, energy invested in that idea of playing at a power five school and winning a national title. Now, getting them to understand that being on even the, let's say the best girls ECNL team in the country or the best boys ECNL team in the country isn't who they're competing against anymore. The other ones that are on the, the best one, they're competing against the kid on the national team from England. I think we've got seven girls that played for the England, either 17, 18 or 19 national team. We've got we've got kids that, that, that are from Africa. We've got kids that are from Dubai. We've got kids that are, I've got two former Bundesliga reserve team kids, goalkeepers. One's at, well, he's retired, he's done now. But then the other, he was at Wisconsin and the other one's at Boston College now. So our American kids, getting them to understand that the world is who they're competing against now can be difficult. And then getting families to put aside the idea, if you can even just do it for five minutes, forget about the label of the school and describe to me what experience that you want. And the minute that a kid says, I want, I'd be interested in taking a semester abroad, that may eliminate a lot of division one schools right off the bat that may not allow that of their players. Or if they say, I wanna study engineering or physical therapy, there are certain schools in this country where the classes that are gonna be required to have those majors are held only during practice times. So then it may be very difficult for the kids to do that. So once I can get them to describe for me the experience on a, on a wider scale of what they're looking for, then we can start saying, well, then you should be thinking about this kind of school in these kinds of conferences. and. And also what the end game goal is, Kieran, right? So the, if the end game goal is to be working for SpaceX, sending rockets into space, and you want to go into engineering, do you know how many aeronautical engine or aerospace engineering schools there are in this country? Not a ton, not a ton. So it eliminates a lot of schools that don't have higher level engineering programs, right? So even if you want to go to ABC school because you think it's your dream school that's based on perception of what you see on television or what you read in the newspaper or what you can see on the net but the academics may not match up with what their end goal is does that make sense yeah what does the once a player decides and goes on and plays what does the relationship between you and them look like as they proceed through the college experience are you still there as a support or what's that relationship look like yeah, so the NCAA has very specific rules about not representing players while they're in college. They don't want them having agents in college, even if you're not collecting a fee of any sorts, that's, they're very clear. So we call it pastoral support for life. Uh, 
The term pastoral support's kind of a European word. We don't use it in the United States, but the idea is that we're there to support them if they have questions. So we've had kids, we've had, as you can imagine this time of year, Kieran, kids are talking about, should I transfer? Or how do I approach my coach about a sensitive topic? So we have, I've talked to 12, I think 12 players so far after the end of the season where they called me and had an issue that they needed to talk out with somebody who had coached and been there and done that and been through a few thousand kids that had brought problems to them. And then we're able to lend them our advice based on our experience. And so we'll do that as long as they need us. I mean, it sounds silly, pastoral support for life, but the reality is, is once a kid gets a job and a family, they're probably not calling us. So I'm not that worried about saying that we will be able to be there for them for life. But we've got kids that are 27, 28 years old that we hear from every once in a while. In fact, I had a girl named Nina Cephalo, who I probably coached probably been 16 years, who said, I'm coaching my first high school uh, team. What would you recommend for me, coach? So in the same way that my old players can call me and ask me for advice or we, we allow that of our clients too. So we do try to keep a little more hands-on approach maybe than, I know than more than a lot of companies. There's some companies out in the world doing a great job. There's some companies in the world doing a terrible job and just kind of abandoning their kids once they've collected cash check and the kid is placed in a college. We try not to do that. You mentioned California, that's known as a hotbed of soccer. It, it, was that something you started playing as a youth and then got this love for this game? So Kieran, I started in 1974 playing soccer. A friend came up to me and said, uh, we've got, there's gonna be a new soccer league. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and he says, come play. I didn't like baseball. I was scared to death of getting hit by a ball. Uh, I didn't want to swing the bat. I just wanted to get out of the way and get on base. I wasn't interested in baseball. Uh, basketball, football scared the heck out of me getting hit that hard by big guys because I wasn't very big or that athletic. So I took, I started playing soccer and then become a goalkeeper. How does that work? I was scared to death of getting hit by everything and I become a goalkeeper. But it never bothered me as a goalkeeper for whatever reason. Fake tooth, broken nose, broken fingers, all that stuff. Didn't seem to bother me. So I got into soccer. Uh, Turns out he only asked me to join because he would get a free soccer ball if he asked a bunch of kids to join. But I joined in 74 and I never gave it up. And I've been, I played all the way into my 30s. Um, there were no pro leagues. I wasn't, I don't think I was good enough to play pro anyways, but we played at pretty high level Bay Area leagues. Anybody from the Bay Area knows about the San Francisco League and the East Bay Leagues. There's some really good players that were coming through. So. I feel like I got a good experience at a decent level and then got into coaching like everybody else because uh, I'm sitting in the car one day, Kieran, and my son was gonna, we're gonna sign up my son for soccer. And I think we're going to my brother's house for his birthday or something like that. And I'm sitting in the car, my wife's inside signing my kid up. Pretty soon my wife comes out with the president of the league and he goes, well, the bad news is, is your son's five. We really don't start kids till six. The good news is, is we're short coaches. So your wife said that you played soccer and if you're willing to coach, we'll let your son play a year early. My son's sitting in the back seat of the car. At this point, what am I gonna say? No. So I start coaching, but I flat out told him, I know nothing about coaching, nothing, zero. He goes, don't worry about it. We'll send you to coaching school. 
So they did, they paid for my F license. And then I thought, this is fun. And then took my E and then my C and then my B and then my, eventually my A license. And by that time I had, you know, started coaching in high school and then coached uh, goalkeepers for the league for nothing, just learning how to coach. And then started coaching in college. I think I was at my C license. When the instructor did a goalkeeping section. They always do a goalkeeping section in your C and your B and your A, except he wasn't a goalkeeper. And he comes up and says, look, I've been stuck with the goalkeeping. I'm the new guy on staff. So they stuck me with it and I know nothing about it. And he lays out some drills and then he does something. And by this time of the course, any goalkeeper who's ever been in a coaching course knows that they find out within a day or two that you're a goalkeeper, they jump all over you because they want you to jump into this drill and that drill and be their demo boy for, or girl, for, for the class. And so he knew I was a goalkeeper. So he, he does this exercise and he says, is that how you do it? And I said, no. He goes, not good. And I said, all wrong. And so I, he goes, how would you do it? So I run to my car, I grab my flags, I grab my cones, I grab my rope, all these things. And I start laying out a session on angles, which is what, and by the time he was, I was done, uh, one of the people in the class, Lisa Kowalski, her name is uh, Best Sellers at the time, but now it's Lisa Kowalski, said, I just got a job at Cal State East Bay as the women's soccer coach. We'd like you to be the goalkeeper coach. Will you come in? So I did. And it was 750 bucks a year to go in and be a goalkeeper coach. Uh, and that was my first paid college coaching gig. Before that, I was a volunteer assistant at a junior college just because I was interested in trying to figure out how to do this for a living, right? Trying to figure out what this would look like. So I was at Cal State East Bay. I had eight jobs at one point. I had my quote-unquote full-time job in an accounting firm. And then I worked for the state of California. I did private lessons. I worked at Cal State East Bay. I worked for various soccer leagues. I was doing camps and clinics and everything just trying to make this fit into what looked like a full-time income so that's kind of how i got started coaching youth and then eventually worked up had a short stint coaching pro let's take my b license and troy dyack some of your listeners may remember the name played for the san jose earthquakes uh blew out his pcl and his acl simultaneously i think he was the first person in the country that found a doctor to repair both of them at the same time. Uh, usually they want you to do one, let it heal, and then they go back and do the other. But he wanted to get back to playing. So he was player coach at the Bay Area Seals for a company that had just bought the Seals. Uh, and they bought, I think they bought Orange County. And at that time they owned a, a team in Riverside. They were the first publicly traded corporation, soccer corporation in the United States. So publicly traded on the exchange and they owned soccer teams. That's what they did. Uh, owned, that company was owned by a guy who was a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley before the dot-com bust. So he was spending money like crazy. We were running this team, we were playing. And then at the end of that season, the dot-com bust came and that guy lost everything and I was out of a job. So I was back to college coaching. 
as I as you look back, what was the experience of coaching your son? Was it just a one year thing, or did you coach him through a handful of seasons? It's always what's that dynamic of being coach and dad? Yeah, you know, he was the kid. He's gonna kill me when he hears this. So he's coaching at North Carolina State right now. So he, he's coaching big time in the ACC. He's a goalkeeper coach there. He's gonna kill me if he hears this. But he was the kid that was that would twirl his strings of his pants and he was picking flowers and looking at gophers so uninterested in playing soccer from five six seven but I had a rule for my under eights I guess it was that every kid was going to play goalkeeper once and then the kids that liked it were going to get to play it a second time so everybody got to play you know a couple times if they wanted to third of the season some kids had to play it three times because that other kid didn't like it. And they did, that kind of thing. When he came into goal, he kind of came alive. He he actually paid more, more attention in goal. Parents were telling me, don't stick him in goal. You're not going to stick him in goal. He'll get killed. The ball will just smash him in the face. He won't, he's not paying attention. I said, I just everybody's going to do it. But he came alive and he loved it. And I was a goalkeeper. I was still playing at the time. So he would come out on the weekends and he'd watch me play. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But he loved being a goalkeeper. So I coached him at under eights, under tens, under twelves. And I think at under twelves, we did a little what they called select back in the day, right? They used to have old timers will remember, they used to have house, advanced house, and select three levels. So we we joined maybe advanced house the first couple of years. That's what it was. And then we eventually joined a select team. Then by the time Kieran that he was maybe 14, probably freshman year, I was also coaching a high school team and I really didn't want to coach my son anymore. And I thought it was best for him to have another coach because at this point, at 10 years old, he declared, I want to play in England. And I, to myself, I'm not a monster, rolled my eyes and said, yeah, right. You got no prayer, not, not snowball's chance of hell. So, but that, that was only internally. Again, I'm not a monster. I, uh, I, you know, I got, got him a, a kickback and I sent him to goalkeeper camps and he was doing private training. He was coming to my private trainings with other goalkeepers and he'd come hang out at the seals and, and could watch us train and in the locker room. And, and he really became a student of the game. He did. I think the 94 World Cup, he had a collection of every single card. He could tell you the stats of almost every player in the world. He could tell you who the managers were. He was really studying the game. And this is probably about 13 years old. And so uh, I decided he should have another coach. Uh, I would still help him with the goalkeeping, no problem, but as a head coach, so I sent him off to play. At 14 years old, we stuck him on an under-19 team, under-19 advanced house in another city. I wanted him to play with bigger, older kids. I wanted him to see what it was like to get tossed around by stronger guys. And then we ended up moving him to another team for a year. And then in the last two or three years in high school, he played with a friend of mine out in Los Gatos. We're driving two hours out to practice and two hours back for a buddy of mine named Jan Nordmo. People in Northern California will know who Jan is. He's uh, been around a long time and uh, teaches like still licenses for the Federation. So uh, that's what we did and uh, coached him through high school because um, I was a high school coach. And then, yeah, and 
then then that was it. So at, at some level, I was always his coach, uh, and we got along. We got along fine. Um, he's a pretty thick-skinned kid, and I'm a jerk, uh, but he knew it, and I was harsh, but he was he was okay with it, and uh, we really didn't have any rows or problems as a as a father son because I think I just made it pretty clear that when I'm coaching you, I'm your coach. It has nothing to do with me being your dad. I can't treat you differently because you're my kid. I'm not going to be harder on you. And I'm also not going to be easier on you. I probably lied to him about the harder on you part. I think I was probably harder on him. Probably was. You talked about playing all the way up into your thirties. Was there a, a stop at the college level that you played at? Yeah. Well, so I, I, I coming out of high school, we had won our league high school league twice and high school was a big deal back then. I was, we were playing high school and I was doing traveling team stuff, but I was unrecruited. So Chabot down the street from me was a recent state champion and national champion. Um, and we all knew who the coach was and, and I was kind of unrecruited. So um, I ended up having somebody get a hold of the coach and then the coach said, come on out. And I played for a summer and I realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And I didn't think I was going to play. And I had the choice between work, making money, and continuing with college and continuing to play. And I chose work. And I dropped out of school and the next year married my wife. And then a year later had kids. And so I, I didn't really start playing. I probably stepped out for about three years, Karen, four years of playing. And then had some adults that said, come play with us. And then somebody saw me and my buddy play in some recreational adult league and asked us to come play in the top amateur league in the area, um, come play with their team. So somebody knew somebody, I don't remember how it happened. So that's what we did. And I played for another probably eight years after that until I got knocked down and my shoulder was down like close to where my elbows should be. Like the whole thing was just hanging loose. And when that healed up, I finished up that season and then that was it. I was, I was done. It was the last time I played competitively, I was probably 36. Yeah. Has coaching and organizing things been something you've always been good at, even as a youth, when you were growing up, were you one of those like in the classroom that would kind of take the lead and say, all right, let's, here's how we're going to do this with you organizing, like recruiting now and all that, and all the coaching experience. Is that something that you've just had? as part of your, you know, characteristic traits? I did have a teacher tell me in fifth grade I should be a lawyer. We <laughs> did like these debates on who's the better president, uh, Lincoln or Washington. And I, I think I had Washington and I won the debate. And she says, nobody has ever won the debate when they had Washington. Once you say freed the slaves, I mean, that's it, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, no, he's the best. Uh, uh, so uh, that, I don't know. I guess there's always been a, a part of me that likes anybody who knows me knows I love to talk. I love to, t I'm a control freak. I do like to take control of things. I like things done my way. Um, and so, yeah, I think so. I think that's always been in me. I really didn't know I wanted to coach though full time until when Lisa left the school, I guess I coached under her for two years. And she left and she said, do you want the, do you want the job? They, they'll, they'll offer you the job if you, 
And I said, yeah, but I don't have my bachelor's degree, but I'll go back to school and get it. And she goes, doesn't work that way. You got to have it now. And I said, ah, crap. So like I, two years later, I entered, I went back to school and got my bachelor's and then my master's degree because I knew I wanted to do this full time. So again, I was probably around that same, about 36, 37, when I realized that this is what I wanted to do full time was, was coaching. So then what is your first like head coaching gig look like? Oh, it's a nightmare, man. I, <laughs> I, so I'm applying to jobs all over so that like the Stanford assistant job comes open for goalkeeping. I thought I'd be great for that. I don't get it. I didn't even get an interview. They don't even, they don't even read my resume. I don't think. Um, and I'm working at Cal State East Bay and I got my bachelor's degree at this time. And finally I applied to Ohlone College, which is a junior college in the Bay Area. And I take the gig that same year, we moved from D3 to D2. And they and after I accept the gig at Ohlone, they tell me they're gonna make the move and they wanna offer me the full-time assistant job. It had never been, the assistant job had always been like, I don't know, 10 grand a year, 12 grand a year. This was like 22 grand a year plus benefits. Said, oh, I added up. I go, that's almost 40 grand when you add up all the benefits that you get. And I said, I, I gotta do this. So I was coaching at Ohlone as the head coach and doing this at the same time. And I just told Ohlone, I said, I'll give you this year because I promised it to you. I'm not gonna leave you high and dry now, but I can only do this one year. I gotta go back to Cal State East Bay. They need me full time. So uh, Cal State East Bay was great. I would, I would go and hold practice like at, I don't know, noon at Ohlone, which was then hop in the car, 40 minutes down the road, show up at Cal State East Bay, coach from three to five, and then go to club teams and coach in the afternoon. I was probably putting in four hours a day on my real job, accounting, and then I was putting in eight, eight 10 hour days in coaching. <laughs> that's all I wanted to do and I was lucky that my boss just said here's your set of work at the accounting job just get it done and I don't care when you show up where you are just don't let me hear from any of your clients that's what I did you mentioned also coaching at the professional level how does that scenario come about so I'm so I'm taking my B license I'm in Arizona I make friends with Troy Dyack uh, and I told you, you know, so he's taking over as player manager. And I just said, do you need a goalkeeper coach? And he goes, actually, I think we do. Let me ask the owner. So there's a guy named Dennis Lukens, uh, who's, who's the, not the owner, but the, but the, the general manager and the head coach. And so I go into Dennis's office and I sit down with him and I tell him I want my 75 bucks an hour. And, uh, I was charging, I think at that point I was charging, and this is, remember, this is 99, 2000. I think I'm charging 90 bucks an hour for goalkeeping lessons, private lessons. But I was very successful. I had a girl that was on national team and then got another girl on the national team. And I could see that the methodology I was using, the Franz Huth method, uh, was making these kids better. And I was getting pretty good at being able to be a goalkeeper coach. I was getting pretty good at it. And he met my demands. I said, I'll lower the price for you to 75 bucks an hour. He goes, okay, we'll have you come in. And he lays out the hours and he does the budget. And then he offers me the job. And I show up and I start working. Nervous, nervous as all get out. I, I, I was coaching college women and I was coaching youth. 
uh, I had never, I'm coaching pro men now. I'm nervous as heck, but I just walked in like I own the place and, um, you know, fake it till you make it sort of, but I did know my stuff. And when I started doing my sessions and putting them together and analyzing film, they quickly, I earned the respect of the staff and of the players doing complete film breakdown off of VCR, by the way, no fun. (laughs) Start, stop, start, stop. I bought a dual VCR system, start, stop, start, no fun at all. But uh, that's how I put my film together for the men. And so I would not, I do, I show up to every home game, but they wouldn't travel me on the road. There was no budget. So I would have them send me the film. And so if they had a three, four game road trip, they would send me the film. They'd have it sent to my house. I would start the process by the time the goalkeepers got back on Monday or Tuesday or whatever. Then I would have the session ready based on the film. We'd do the film session, we'd do the breakdown. We'd say, these are where the problems are happening. I would have the sessions designed for them to recreate the situations that they're struggling with. And then we were off and running for the week. So I had the time of my life, had a blast. I just realized how unstable that business is. You know, very unstable. You mentioned the nervousness working with the pros. What are some of the, you know, coaching people say is it's just coaching, but it's clearly how are they, is it different the experience with youth to like the college level to the professional level is what things are a little bit different? Are they the same? What is that experience when you compare the three levels? It's the same in that I taught them the same things. I actually had to work on the crossing technique with my goalkeepers, like I would teach the youth, you know, we were switching, changing up some techniques. Now at the pro level, you don't do a ton of that. If if they're successful keeping it out with their butt, you let them keep it out with their butt. If they can figure out how to do it, let them do it. You don't tell them what to do at the pro level. The youth level, it's like, you know, teaching a kid how to tie their shoelaces, right? I don't remember what movie, what it is, where the guy's talking about the loop, swoop and scoop and all of this with the shoelaces, how you teach it and which way you move it is gonna be different for every person that teaches it, even though you're trying to accomplish the same thing. So with youth, you just give them your methodology, you let them adjust to it. They'll do whatever you tell them to do. They will very rarely ever question you. Most youth don't even ask you why. You have to explain to them why, they won't ask. The pros, if you say something that's in any way contradictory to something that they feel has made them successful, they'll call you out right there on the spot. They're men. They'll just say, why, why are you doing this? What are, you, what are we doing? This doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so I would talk about the methodology and why we're talking about making this move or this change or why I needed something from them. If they didn't agree, I would say, do it your own way then, that's fine. But I would also say, the minute that you give up a goal because you did it your own way and not my way, you're gonna have a problem. So do what you want to do, but it better work. Because <laughs> I know my way works. And so you've got that bit and piece. Uh, super, they're, they're just more picky because they know what the standards look like at the higher levels. You can't fool them in anything. If there's any swoosh in the ball whatsoever, they, boom, first touch, you just knock the ball out. So I had to make sure that all the balls, we didn't have equipment guys at our level. This was A-League. So it was basically what would be USL championship now. We were a direct feeder 
to and from the earthquakes. So they would send down uh, their second team goalkeeper to come play for us every once in a while if he needed games. So we were their feeder connection directly. Um, so we, we were like their reserve team. We had eight or nine guys that would end up on their bench at some point during the season. Um, so it's they know what it looks like, Karen. You can't fool them in any way, shape, or form. You can't. The stuff that I see, and I'm not going to, you know, on Instagram, goalkeeper training, uh, you know, here comes the ball. I'm going to throw it in the upper right-hand corner. You already know where it's going. I'm going to give you a seven-step running head start, and then I want you to fly up into that corner and make the save. Well, come on. It's not goalkeeper training. That is something for Instagram. It's for the cameras, as we used to say. Uh, you can't pull any of that stuff. You can't hand serve. You, if you can't strike a ball cleanly at the pro with a pro player, you will never hear the end of it. So I got really good with my feet because they would harass me if I miss hit a ball. Youth, that doesn't happen. So, you know, you can get away with doing, do a somersault, spin around in pirouette, and I'll throw the ball, and you go through the flaming hoop. The kids will just do it, and the parents think it's great. At the pro level, they'll laugh you out of there. You can't do silly things that just, you can't get away with being a fraud. And that's what happens, is at the higher levels that you go up to, you will find less of a chance you get away with being a fraud. You just mentioned the idea of Instagram and what have you. How has that impacted one, like coaching that you that you've noticed, and two, recruiting? How big is social media right now in terms of, I mean, the good and the bad? It's only going to get bigger. It's not going away anytime soon. It will be. It's getting massive. Twitter, the Twitter soccer coaching community during the pandemic, I think, is what caused all of this, right? What are we all doing? How are we gonna get seen during the pandemic? Gotta have film, gotta have this, gotta have that. Uh, and people started using social media. Um, so now it's here. Now we've, we've opened Pandora's box. This isn't going back. All the old fogies, and you know, I'm 60 years old, but uh, you know, but all my buddies are like, oh, I hate it. I don't like it. It's just like, well, it's not going away. Now we all do have to understand there's so many good and bad. Oh, there's my wife. Hey, Tony, you're on a live you know, podcast. Um, so uh, the idea of training through video and through Instagram and showing what you can do as a trainer, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. There's some really good stuff out there. You know, I'm a goalkeeper. I mean, that's my thing that there's some guys that, that are doing unbelievable stuff. Uh, and then there's people that are just, you know, the parents love it if they don't know soccer. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's just, it's, we, uh, those of us that know soccer are laughing. And, but there's money to be made in it, right? So uh, that's that bit. Video and analysis of games, there's so much you can learn now. Uh, these guys, some of these guys are doing some unbelievable breakdown video analysis. Uh, what's happening in the half spaces, what's happening in the final thirds, look at the movements uh, of the players, 
Look at the movements in a 4-4-2 versus a 4-3-3 versus a 3-4-3. Look at how the play. It's like the, what you can learn is unbelievable. And my young coaching friends are just eating this stuff up as rightfully they should. I would have too. And I still do. I mean, I, I still study what, how do I know all this stuff? Because I'm, I'm paying attention to what they're doing. And sometimes I roll my eyes. I saw one and a half spaces the other day. It made me kind of roll my eyes because it's like, well, no, that's not really what they mean by the use of the half spaces. Yes, they're in the half space. Something happened in and around that space. Had nothing to do with what Pep is talking about. We're talking about using half space. So every once in a while I do that, but hey, I'm learning. Even when I see that, I'm learning. I'm still watching what he's doing and go, well, that is good movement. That is a good eye to see what he's doing. So then there's that. Then there's a the player promotion piece. Uh, yes, okay, but I'm watching how it's used. It's very spammy. It's very lazy. It's just like emails used to be. When we'd get the occasional email where the kid would have a dear coach Jeff, and I, my name is Don. He forgot to forgot to move it out. Yeah. Dear coach Don, but he's written San Francisco State. I'm Cal State East Bay. Forgot to take it out. Uh, or the worst ones where they just screw it. I'm just going to CC every coach in one email. I mean, <laughs> I'm that lazy. That, that happens one out of 50, 60, that happens. People go, I would never do that. Well, one out of 50 or 60 are doing it. So, so Twitter kind of feels like that for me. A kid will tag three different, four different programs in a video that they want to take a look at that. It's like, I don't know if you're tagging three or four programs, if you're tagging me because you're really interested in me. And I am not going to waste 30 seconds of my life watching film of a kid that's not even that, really that interested in me. If you're interested in me, you'll reach out to me individually, personally, you'll email me. So I just feel like there's that bit of it. But then I've got buddies that have very small schools and very small out of the way places that maybe are religious or there's there's something about the lack of programs or lack of facilities, whatever. They can't recruit 18, 20 kids, man. They're having a hard time filling a roster. Hmm. Those guys are using it. Those guys are looking at every single kid and I would too, 100%. If I was still coaching at Feather River College, I would be scouring. I would have my full-time assistant child to be scouring Twitter every day find every kid, friend every kid, talk to every kid, email every kid. Because I was going through 10,000 kids a year. That's not an exaggeration to get my rosters of 25 girl, boys and 18 girls. I'd go through 10,000 kids. It's not filling all the, because I was a junior college, but every, it's half of that every year. It's half of that. So 15, yeah, 30 kids a year I was having to place. And 30 kids a year I was having to recruit. As I did the men's and the women's. Yeah, we'd be using Twitter. I'd be bugging all those kids. And I see some guys that are doing a good job at that. But don't think Notre Dame's doing it. Don't think Stanford's doing it. Stop it. You're tagging Stanford, Notre Dame, and USC, and oh, but it might. You might get lucky. Yes, of course you might get lucky. And people retire because they hit the lottery, too. <laughs> Doesn't mean that's how you should plan your life. One of the big... Anyhow, one of the big topics that's out there right now, and I know you've been kind of sharing it on Twitter, is this transfer portal. How has that changed the whole, I mean, I can imagine what it is, but for, even on your end as you know, part of the SRUSA, 
how has that changed your how you handle and go about doing all of this? Because it feels like there's a lot of people in the transfer portal, not a whole lot of places to go. And that's not even including the incoming freshmen that would be coming onto campuses. Or the junior college kids. Correct. Or the NAIA kids. Not yeah. even including those. So you, I did a swag. You know what a swag is, right? I do not. Sophisticated, wild-ass guess. <laughs> All right. I did a swag based on what I kind of know, and I figured there's probably 8,000 kids a year that are trying to transfer. Pro probably 4,000 boys, 4,000 girls, roughly, roughly. And, and that's just a raw, crazy number. Somebody's going to go, no, it's, it's 4,912, you're way off. Forget it. It's somewhere between four and 6,000, maybe eight. It's, some, it's a big number. So JC kids, we get why they're transferring. But I, I will tell you that very few JC kids transfer. Very few. I was the president of the state of California Junior College Association. Uh, very involved. I knew all the schools and all the programs. I can tell you who the good ones are and the bad ones are. That is one third of all the junior colleges in the entire United States in just California. We have 92 women's programs, 87 men's programs. You triple that, and that's approximately the number of junior colleges in the country. So using one-third as a base example, plus in my job and being around, I know I can I, I know all the national champions, okay, throughout the country, from, from Texas uh, at Richland to Herkimer in New York and to Pima and Yavapai in Arizona. And, in, and all the guys in Texas that are so good in Arizona. Uh, I know them all. I'm gonna tell you that maybe 10%, 15% of JC guys have what it takes to transfer. A lot of those kids were just running away from their problems. They were never gonna go to school and get a degree, but mom and said, you either go to school or get a job. And they go, I'll go to school, I'll play soccer. And so they screw around for a year and then they're out. Maybe they screw around for two years, they barely graduate, but then they're out because they're great. They're just not that interested in school. Look, they, they should be a plumber and be making 150,000 a year. That's what they should be doing. They shouldn't be a doctor going in debt for 1.5 million and then making 250,000 a year and ending up in a worse place off than the plumber ended up in. So they shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing, and they finally realize that. So there's a lot of junior college kids that do that. And as a result, the kids that are deadly serious out of junior colleges, they're, they're easier placements. They're pretty easy placements. Now, that is being offset a little bit by the transfer portal. This is where it's changed everything. When my son was a junior, he wanted to look into transferring from St. Francis. He was playing in Loretto, Pennsylvania, in the Northeast Conference. BJ Craig had just left, uh, had just left to go back to Notre Dame, I think. And then his assistant coach was uh, Coach Casper, who's at Georgetown now, comes in as was his assistant, was goalkeeper coach, now becomes the head coach. They start to butt heads just a little bit. He's thinking, maybe I should transfer. He had to ask the coach's permission. 
If the coach said, no, I won't sign the paperwork, it's it, that's it, it's over, done. You can go through the appeals process, but then it gets acrimonious. Then it becomes you against the coach with a committee, and you don't wanna do that. Just, you're not going, don't go. And so not that many kids were transferring. And then in what, 2019, I think, was the first year of the transfer portal. The stats only showed a 2020, but I think 2019 was the first year when they said, this is silly. A lot of kids are being blocked. The coach is blackballing them. They're pulling scholarships. They're sitting the kids. They're never going to play them, but they don't want anybody else to have them. They're good training players. We'll just keep them. ADs weren't signing, and it was really tough, and it was not healthy. So the pendulum goes the other way. Mm. Just You don't even have to tell your coach. Do you know that? You just go to your compliance officer and I want to put you in the portal. 24 hours, you have to be in the portal. That's what they give you. So coach could get blindsided. That never happens because you know the compliance officer just calls the coach, just letting you know, or shoots an email, just letting you know that so-and-so just went in the portal. It's like, oh crap. I didn't know I was losing that player. So it's made it easier. It's also made it easier on coaches when they do want to get rid of kids because then they can say, hey, there's the portal. Before they used to have to like, hey, I got some bad news for you. I don't know what you're gonna do. I don't want you here anymore for whatever reason. I don't think coaches are monsters. I don't think they like this. There's a few guys that like it. I know I know a group on Twitter that seems to enjoy torturing kids if they're not good enough. They don't they don't want to invest any time at all in these kids. Hmm. It's like, oh, it's just business. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. You recruited them. You promised their parents you would take care of them. I never got rid of a kid unless the kid was absolutely horribly destructive to the program. Never. They don't care if the kid wasn't good enough. You're just honest with them. You say, you're here. I recruited you. I said, you could be here. You can be here. That's how I treat treated kids. But I think the portal has kind of changed how all this is going on. I think it's changed attitudes. I think it's made it so that coaches are losing very good players. Very good players. A good friend of mine, I I felt horrible. I recommended a goalkeeper to him. He took him. Kid started his freshman year. Kid started his sophomore year. Guy was going to make him captain. And the player said, we're not winning. We're not winning. I want to win. I'm doing very well, but I want to win. I said, well, if you're going to do it, this is the time to transfer. This would be the time to do it. It was the end of the season. And I said, now we've found the kids at Boston College. So he made that upward movement. You've got those kids, right? So coaches are losing very good kids. And this coach and I had a little falling out for a while because one of his players left. He blamed me. And I get it. You feel like you've got to blame somebody. He felt he had a good relationship with the coach. But I don't talk my players into transferring. I don't do it. I don't do it. If you ask me, I will tell you and I will advise you. But you have to ask me. Uh, That's changed. Then you've got the kids that shouldn't have been where they are. They just shouldn't have been there. There's just no way they should have been there. They're never gonna play. They, their parents said, I'm okay with you being a preferred walk-on. I'm okay with that. I know we're not getting money, but the deal is is that, that kid's not that wanted. Not that wanted. You've probably heard me say, go where you're wanted. This is what I mean. You, you have, my God, I'm calling you every chance I can legally call you. What's it going to take to get you here? You have that. That's being recruited. Then you have, okay, if these five kids say no, I'll be back to you. 
okay? And then those five kids say no, and they do get up against the wall, and they go, I'm back to you. You weren't that bad. And then you have the kids that are begging coaches, begging them to be on the rosters. Please, I'll play for you for nothing. Please, I'll be here. I'll Please, I will. Please, please, I'll come to every camp. I'll come to every camp. I'll spend twenty thousand dollars to go to your. I'll go to every camp. I'll please take me. And my parents went to school here. Okay, all right, you can come to school here. But they're never going to play them. No intention. I've got friends who have kids like that, and they're okay with it because it's an ACC school. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with never playing. I'm okay with never playing for Stanford, but I'm not okay with never playing for my local junior college. I'm okay never playing for Notre Dame, but I'm not okay never playing for Alaska State. Okay, so it's it's that weighing of what is important to you that I don't think is being vetted very well. And I so I think the transfer portal is kind of a reflection of that because it's just we're not being very thoughtful about all of the things that go into the right. Because you go. Well, pay attention to the academics. Yeah, 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 I'm paying attention, but I want to be at Notre Dame. Okay, but pay attention to how much it costs you. Yes, I'm paying attention to it, but I want to be at Notre Dame. Okay, well, well, pay attention to how much you're going to play. Yeah, yeah, I know I'm not going to get to play, but I want to be at Notre Dame. See, that's the D1 or bus mentality. And if I can't play at Notre Dame, I'm never going to play. So I'd rather just, if I'm going to go to Alaska State, I'd rather just quit Maybe just be on the club team and just have some fun or maybe forget soccer at all. And I'll just go to school, get my degree, join a sorority, join a fraternity, have a good life. Unless I can play at Notre Dame. See, but here's what people are missing on that piece, Karen. That kid really doesn't love soccer that much. Mm -hmm. They really don't love it that much. If I would have played at, you know, the, my local junior college, because I didn't want to quit playing soccer. That's why. I would play anywhere that I could play because I didn't want to quit playing soccer because I was addicted to it because I couldn't get enough of it. And that's what made me horribly athletic body, terrible, not a bad player because I played a lot of it. And I realized that if I dedicated all those hours to the violin, I bet I could get pretty good at the violin. I dedicated a lot of hours to skiing in college that I should have been in class. I got pretty good at skiing. <laughs> yeah, I got pretty good. We're talking about joining the ski patrol. We were so good. We were going off to places that people don't go. So we knew that we were pretty good. Why? Because I spent a lot of hours at it. So kids that aren't very good at soccer, they don't really love it. If they loved it, they'd spend more hours at it. Not because it gets them to college, not because it gets them a scholarship, not because it gets them pro, not because it puts them in the paper, because they love it. That's why they're doing it. And we've got a lot of kids that don't really love soccer that are so deep into this now, Kieran, they can't say no to their parents. Everybody's talking on the internet about how this is gonna pay for my kid's school and how do I get a scholarship and how do I get to my kid to college and how and what investment I am making in my child. Your child is not an investment. Your child is not a 401k, they're a human being. But we're treating our child like 401k plans. They're an investment for me and my family. Oh, come on, not through soccer. What are we doing? This is silly. So we've got a bunch of kids that really don't love playing. So they get into college and they go, oh my God, I'm free. 
look at all these things that I can do on my own without my mom and dad. I can get in trouble. I can do it. Mom and dad never knew about it. Isn't this great? I never really wanted to play soccer in the first place. Those guys are having way more fun over there. And then they just quit. But the mom and dads won't let them quit right away. They got to put them in the portal. But this is why the 50% of the girls and the 60% of the kids never come off the portal. I don't think they're playing anymore. And people are going, oh, no, they could be going to an NAI. They could be. Probably not going from Stanford to an NAI, though. Probably not. They probably weren't that bad. I know girls especially, but boys too, who more, more often on the girls' side, Karen, who at 18 years old, we'd go out to a tournament and we'd look at this kid, and there's seven of us coaches mesmerized by this kid. And then one of them will go, yeah, yeah, she doesn't even want to play after this year. And we all just go away. It's like, what a waste. That kid's a Pac-12 kid. I've come across at least 20 of those in my career. Pure, absolutely power five, Herman Mack list by their junior year. Don't want to play anymore. Won't play. I'm just going to go to college. I'm just going to go to UCLA. Oh, you're going to play there? No, I'm just going to UCLA because I want to go to UCLA. I didn't get recruited by him, so I just want to go to UCLA. By the way, I love that kid. That kid's going somewhere. That kid's got guts. That kid knows who they are, has supportive parents. That kid's got a sh real shot at making something of themselves. The Poor kids that can't tell mom and dad no. <laughs> it's hard. The one thing that you have that resonated with me earlier was you talked about getting married and having kids and then you were coaching here and driving two hours to do this and now you're fully invested in the SRUSA and you mentioned your wife coming through in the behind. How big of a piece of this equation has your wife been in terms of helping you balance all of these plates and spend the time to, you know, get to know the recruits that you're working with and to kind of continue to watch your journey. I mean, you're in your mid thirties. You're like, I want to make coaching my gig. I want to get into soccer and make this what I do. How important and big of a support has she been during this journey? Thank you for mentioning my wife's behind. She'll appreciate that. She works hard on it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. She, um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, no, she's, she's, there's no way there's many, many, many coaching friends that are divorced. Their wives can't take it. They couldn't take the profession. This is a, I was up at three. If I got a phone call and the phone would never leave my bedside, it would ring at three in the morning. I'd look at it and I'd say, oh shoot, that's an Australian number. That's, that's that kid. I would get up at three in the morning and I would take a recruiting phone call. You never shut it off. We would go, uh, can we go on vacation? No, I got to go to surf cup. I got to go to Thanksgiving surf. By the way, I won't be around for Thanksgiving. Go on Thanksgiving surf. You want to go with me? Yeah, yeah, I'll go with me. And I'd take her with me and she'd recruit out me at the at the grounds. And then we'd go screw around, do some stuff together. But without her and the way she is, there's just no way. And, and honestly, even if I was single, you're just being able to have a household and all of the things that she does. And she works full time too, by the way. She's a professional photographer. So she puts in full time and runs this and supports me. And I'm just, I'm taking off this weekend, California Community College Showcase Final Four. And she'll be home alone in the snow, feeding wood into the stove by herself and taking care of the cats. And she's amazing. Yeah, pays all the bills and makes it so I can just focus on my job full time. Even though she's got a full time job, it's so unfair. Thank goodness I've got a traditional woman 
who understands me and gets it and enjoys doing what she does with no complaints, none, zero. And anything we want, I moved her up to the mountains out of the city for soccer, for coaching, take a job at the college up here. No, she's amazing. And I think that coaches need to understand that, that aren't married or are getting into it, that either either she has the right balance. I've got other friends of mine that treat soccer like a nine to five. They will not pick up the phones on the weekend and say, I'm not going to pay for that. And they will work college jobs nine to five. That's it. That's the other way to do it. You can do that with this. By the way, guess what their records are? They did not take a program that's never been nationally ranked and make it all the way number two in the country. We did that. How? Because we worked 15, 16 hour days. Our staff did crazy, crazy hours to make that happen. Because I wanted to be the number one team in the nation. That was the goal. But he goes, oh, it's hard to win league. I said, that's your, that's your standard winning league. What a standard. No, winning a national title. You have to have a woman or a man or your spouse, somebody that's tied to you to help you with all the daily stuff so that you can spend more hours doing playing a game or you have to treat it like a nine to five, in which case those guys don't win. The nine to five guys, they don't, they bear, they don't break 500. 60% of the division one schools in this country are sub 500. Hmm. Some are working very hard at being sub 500. Some aren't working very hard at being sub 500, if that makes sense. You have guys that are putting in the hours and still not winning because they have no support structure of the school. Where the school is located, nobody will go there. Even the local people don't want to live there. And there's schools in those areas, in slums, in, 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 in really bad neighborhoods. Nobody wants to go to school there. So they struggle no matter what. But coaches need to understand that if you want to win, this is an all-encompassing profession. This is not a nine-to-five job. And then when you find out you're making you know, $55,000 a year and you do the math and you go, I literally don't make minimum wage. <laughs> literally. Do not make minimum wage in the poorest state. It's really bad. No, we don't get paid very much. And then people go, yeah, like my friend Sam Bowen at Florida, she, she's showing a picture of her private jet that they're getting in. She goes, oh, this is such a game changer. Like, Sam, you sucker. She, she goes from, she, she goes from, what, she was at Embry-Riddle and then ends up there. And what a game changer is right. Yes, it's a game changer. But we look at that and we go, yeah, that's not all Division One. That's not, most Division One is traveling in a van and eating cold pizza in a van. That's what most of Division One is doing and Division Two and everybody else. It's a hard life. Yeah. As you look, nothing. as you look forward um, into the next five, 10 years, what, what are the, some of your kind of aspirations moving forward? Are you looking to continue to grow the recruiting in the USA and all, all the Americas and what have you and make it, you know, just the biggest that it can be? Or do you have even larger aspirations beyond that? Yeah, that look, the, the goal of the goal of what I do is education. So I signed up for education, for teaching, and being involved in young lives. Um, 
35 years ago, I guess, 1989, whatever that math is. I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> How long has that been? Anyhow, 1989, I, I started getting involved in young people. So even growing up, I kind of knew, I thought I wanted to be a youth pastor. I liked the idea of being around kids and teaching and mentoring because I had none of that in my life. I was a very much a wild child. And the first structure I had in my life, uh, because my family was such a disaster, the first structure I had in my life besides my grandparents though was coaches. It was coaches. Coaches made a difference in my life, recognizing that I was going to go home to an empty house at eight o'clock at my night at night because my mom was passed out drunk and saying, spend the night at our house. They were adults. They knew what was going on. I didn't think they knew, but they knew. So they made a difference. I So that really impacted me at nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. So I kind of knew in my teen years, this is what I wanted to do was be around young lives and try to help them and make things better for them and, and teach them. Um, so that carries through to SRUSA. So everything, as soon as I came into the company, I was the first former college coach. Chris was the former college player, but I was the first former college coach to come on board. So I just started thinking like a coach. And I said, oh, really the job is, I'm an assistant coach for every coach in the country. That if I truly see a kid who could play at Stanford, I can make that phone call or Florida, or Notre Dame, or Indiana. But the problem is 99.9% .9 of the kids are not good enough for me to even bother making that phone call, okay? And that's not being elitist, it's being brutally honest. Out of love, why are you chasing a school that you're never gonna play at? So being an assistant coach and be able to guide and place four coaches. So when I make a phone call to a coach, uh, you know, Jamie at University of Washington just emailed me back and said, thank you, we'll take a look at this kid, okay? Uh, it's because he only hears from me once a year. Doesn't hear from me every day. I don't tell him every single kid out of every single class is, is fit for University of Washington or Indiana or any school. But when we have them, we know what they look like, if that makes sense. So educating, kids and families is a piece of it. But then I started to think, what are all of the problems that all of us college coaches have with freshmen? What are the commonalities? we got the freshman 15 because they don't know how to eat now that they're all on their own. So what if we could teach our freshmen at SRUSA nutrition? What if we could give them the tools that they needed to cook for themselves and to take care of themselves and to eat right before they were freshmen? What if we, the, another problem we thought of is, look, mentally, freshmen, they just kind of freak out. I get it. You're away from home for the first time in your life. You're scared to death. It's the scariest time of your entire life. You, from a lot of kids, mom and dad aren't around. And you've got to figure it out on your own. And you're 18 and you have no friends. And you've got to fit in with a bunch of 22-year-old women or men. And sometimes 25, 26, it depends. You've got to deal with coaches you've never dealt with who don't really seem to give a crap about your personal life that much. There's friends of mine that will argue, it's like, yes, we all love our kids and we all try the best we can, but the reality is there's 30 of them and there's one of us, okay? And then you got your own family. Then you got your own personal problems. And you got your own, you know, all of that. So how much time can you invest? So sports psychology came into play, teaching kids how to be more resilient, how to be stronger, how to break through. So we partnered with Dan Abrahams one of the best sports psychologists on planet Earth. 
everybody that's going to the convention, you watch standing room only out the door for Dan Abrahams every session. It's unbelievable. So he became a partner with us. And so we provide our kids with one of his programs. We pay for it. Well, the kid does. We give it to Dan, but you know what I mean? Wrapped up in the program. Uh, and then uh, fitness. So we gathered the best of our ability, the best college level fitness pro program that we could find based on all of our experiences. And we give our kids that 10 week summer program that they can repeat, they can put on. So fitness, and then we partnered with Erica Sutter, right? So she's got amazing at what she does for fitness. And then we brought in another partner, SPI Academy out in California, who uh, every summer the pros will come out to Southern California. So Jack Harrison came out and uh, one year, Origi, well, Origi, yeah, came out and Benteke and Sala. And they train while their families go to Disneyland and they train with these guys. We partnered with, with David Park and his partner uh, out in that academy, trying to provide places and ways for kids to grow physically, mentally, technically, and then tactically is all of our experience as a staff. So when we review film with our kids, we're not just reviewing film, we're saying, now you should be doing this, you should be doing that. See that, that ball should be bending this way instead of that way. So we're teaching our players how to be better at what they do. And so now you can just see, Kieran, if you take that concept and you expand it, teaching, teaching, not ID camps, but teaching clinics. There used to be a day when they had striker clinics, goalkeeper clinics, striker clinics, striker goalkeepers, combining, working with each other. We want to take that into midfielders and defending and specialized clinics like they have in American football. From a staff who knows what they're doing is not just going to put you through a bunch of drills, but uh, we're connected enough. I mean, if I asked Todd Bean to put on something in conjunction with us, I bet we could work something out. You know, getting somebody from another country to come over and do something is not cheap, right? But it's all, but it's possible. Or Franz Hook on the goalkeeper side. Franz will work with us. It's not cheap and everybody's got to pay for it, but it's all possible. So being able to give our kids access to anything educationally and then expand that beyond not just our SRUSA clients, but anybody who wants to be involved in educating themselves, whether it's coaching education or player education or ID stuff. You could do ID stuff better. You know what's wrong with ID camps? This is gonna sound cruel. <laughs> what's wrong with ID camps is that anybody can sign up, whether you can kick a ball or not. And a lot of kids show up that can't kick a ball. A lot of them. They showed up to Stanford camp and they can't kick a ball. They, they cannot play very well. They're not athletic, but they show up because everybody says, why not buy a lottery ticket? Same reason I buy a lottery ticket. Maybe they'll like me, maybe I'll win it. So every time it gets up to a, over a billion dollars, I'm buying a lottery ticket like everybody else. And we're treating colleges like ID camps, like their lottery tickets. And that's what we're paying, except instead of paying a dollar, a dollar, they're paying three and $400 and five and $700,000 for a lottery ticket. And wouldn't it be great if nobody wasted any money 
on lottery tickets that cost a thousand, two thousand. Plus, you got to fly there, by the way. I had a girl that said she spent twelve thousand dollars on camps and still wasn't recruited, by the way, because you're chasing the wrong schools. That's why, because you're chasing the wrong school. If you walked into the right school and she wasn't a bad player, if she walked into the right school, she could have 40 options if she walked into 40 of the right schools. And that she's got nothing to show for her $12,000. And today she's still not playing soccer. Okay, so education to help families save money, to make it more efficient for them. I arrogantly said to somebody the other day, I might as well say it here, first time I've ever said it publicly, my job is before I die to try to change the way that recruiting is done in the United States. I don't think it's very efficient. It's efficient for coaches to an extent, except they miss 75% of the country. They're only hitting, they're not even, no, they're missing 95% of the country, 98% of the country. They're missing it because they go to an ECLL event and another ECLL event and a GA event, and they go to an MLS Next event, and they go to all these events, add up all those kids and then do the math and then realize that there's a half a million kids in the country and they're looking at how many, Kieran? What would you guess? I don't know. It's not big by percentage. And it's all they're seeing. Unless somebody calls them up and goes, I got a kid, found a kid, found a kid for you, under a rock, found a kid. Kid's unbelievable. And I've got one of those going to UNLV on a full this year. Okay? So, found her under a rock because somebody reached out, because somebody said something. I go, holy crud, she's good. She's good. She's really good. I had a girl like that play for me at junior college. She ended up at Florida State out of junior college or get taken by Florida State. Long story, not mine to tell. But uh, she's playing professionally now. Very, very, very good player because somebody made a phone call. Somebody made a phone call and said, I think you'd be the perfect person to help her. And then she did really, really well. One of the best junior, all-American junior college. Wow. So education, that's the goal. That's the goal. And trying to change how this is done. I don't think it's possible. I'm not so arrogant that I really think it's possible, but if I can make a 1% dent or 2% dent in changing some lives, some families, I think that would be significant progress. Um, and that's all we're doing is walking that direction, Kieran. I don't want people to think that I'm an arrogant, you know, that I think I can change everything. Cause I don't, I know that the genie is out of the bottle. That's what I know. And I know that putting it back is going to take something more than me. Pandora's box has been opened, right? That's it, it's been opened. It's a lot of money at stake here. And people can go, yeah, but you do this for money too? Yes, everybody's gotta do something to feed their families. I might as well do something good with my time. I might as well try to help people with my time and money. And yes, it is money. And yes, it does cost something to have somebody invest 20, 30, 40, 50 hours in you. It costs something. So I don't. I feel good about it. I sleep. I sleep, I sleep well at night knowing that I'm doing my best I can and the companies, we've got some amazing people, amazing people who have coached at some much higher levels than I've coached at in college. Yeah. They know people and they know what they're talking about. That's the best part. So when we look at a kid and we just tell them, hey, look, you're a mid-level D2 kid out of these four or five conferences. That's about where the highest level that you we see you at. Could we be wrong? Of course we could be wrong. Of course. Have I been wrong before? Yes, absolutely. 
it's only about 1% of the time though. I mean, it's pretty small. Usually we're right because we've seen enough of it. Once you see five, 600,000 kids on video throughout a period of 30, 40 years, and you work with them and you know, and you say, well, this kind of kid ended up doing this and they ended up going here. Everybody goes, yes, there's the exception. And I go, yes, good luck buying your lottery tickets for your retirement. If you only want to talk about exceptions to the rule, right? So that's where I see us going. Uh, more education, it'll just continue to expand in that direction. I have absolutely loved this chat. So much information and great nuggets. I'm going to shut this thing down. This is okay. Karen with Coach's Corner Chats with Don Williams, and I'm out. Peace.